Welcome to Open Minds Radio with Alejandro Rojas. Open Minds Radio is your UFO news authority, presenting evidence and the latest news regarding the UFO phenomenon. Here's your host, Alejandro Rojas. Hello. It's Alejandro. How's it going? It is Alejandro Rojas, and we are here to talk about the UFOs. Uh, this is Open Minds Radio, and here at Open Minds, we are your UFO news authority. How cool are we? How cool are you? I wanted, you know, I thought I haven't told the listeners how freaking cool they are in a long time, but we have some cool listeners. I'm so happy that you guys are, are tuning in and listening uh, on a regular basis because it's really what it's all about is sharing with the uh, uh, thousands of people out there I know who are really into this subject and and want to know more about everything when it comes to it and hear from all of these different people. And it's also great to be able to get so many different people on the show to talk to about this stuff. I had so much fun with Nick Redfern last week, and this week is another great guest. This is Micah Hanks, and Micah Hanks runs a website called The Gray Alien Report. And he was actually in an article on Open Mind that was kind of about the youth and their involvement in UFO research. And so that's what we wanted to talk to Micah about. Uh, he also has a book called Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. What a cool name for a book. So we're going to talk to him about his book as well. And he's like in his 20s, uh, upper 20s, but that is pretty rare for this field because, as you know, a lot of the people that I'm talking to on the radio show are older, you know, and I think part of it is that, you know, until you retire, sometimes you don't have time to write books and do a lot of research, so we have a lot of, of older people. And like me and Mike are going to talk about some of the other differences and why uh, there are differences and what are the differences. A lot of the older people are saying, oh, you know, there aren't people coming to our lectures or or I just had a conference and there wasn't a lot of people there or something. But, you know, that to them makes them think that the youth aren't involved, but they are, you know. You're listening to the show. You're podcasting. We're social media. You know, you guys are watching our Twitters and our Facebook. And we know you're out there because we have tons of followers which gives me a chance to plug the Facebook. Don't forget, you know, all of our Facebook out there, the UFO Think Tank. We've got a ton of them. We've got Open Minds Magazine. We've got our Open Minds Forum. You have Jason McClellan or Jason Open Minds. You have Maureen Open Minds. What else? You've got Open Minds TV, Twitter. You have Paranormal Reporter Twitter. You have UFO Daily News uh, Twitter. So we're out there all over the social world and that's where the youth are i think which is great it's just a new and different way to interface with people and uh taking advantage of that is where we can continue the conversation with all the sections of the population and i think that's wonderful and that's what me and michael will be talking about in a little while but first of course we always talk about ufo news and we bring this quirky little guy called Jason on to talk to us about the UFO news of the week. And he's here, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's wonderful. 
Jason McClellan, how are you? Hello, Alejandro. I am wonderful. How are you? Good. Not too bad. Doing well. Not too bad or well? Good. All right. We'll stick with that, my friend. Well, hello, everyone. This is your Open Minds News Brief for Monday, December 5th, 2011. Well, we'll start off with a story about a uh, Hollywood producer named J. Herbert Klein, and he claims that he has proof that UFOs exist. That is the claim he makes in his new book, Beyond Hollywood, a memoir of fate, luck, and the unexplained and living the American dream. The book was announced last week via press release from International Film Arts, a production company founded by Klein and his business partner, movie star John Hall. According to the press release, Klein and Hall invented to things together, including a square anamorphic lens that Klein believed, quote, could photograph the invisible, UFOs, alien life forms, energy fields, and other unexplained phenomena. The pair reportedly shot thousands of photographs using their special lens and, quote, frequently captured images that could only be called out of this world. An example was explained in the press release. The most notable example occurred in 1977 when Klein and Hall witnessed a test flight of the Space Shuttle Enterprise at Edwards Air Force Base near the Mojave Desert in California. From his seat in the viewing section, Hall photographed the Space Shuttle before, during, and after the flight. When Hall developed the film, he discovered that the photographs included images of what appeared to be energy fields, UFOs, and humanoid forms that had been invisible to the naked eye. Stunning, stunned at his discovery, Hall submitted the images to one of the nation's leading manufacturers of photographic equipment, and the company's expert could find no explanation for the unusual phenomena visible in the photos. Hall died in 1979, and Klein kept the photographs in a safe place until deciding to write his memoir. Klein recently stated, I'm finally ready to share my incredible story with the world. The 296-page book's book features approximately 100 photos taken by Klein and Hall, including many amazing shots of unexplained phenomena. Beyond Hollywood, a memoir of fate, luck, the unexplained, and living the American dream is available now at Amazon. And Alejandro, I've got to say, I am a little more than halfway through with this book, but I am engrossed in it right now uh, because it does talk quite a bit about UFOs and other mysterious things in photography, but it's just a cool book in general because this guy was a, a big-time Hollywood producer back in the golden age of, of Hollywood. And his his just stories of rubbing elbows with some of the Hollywood greats, you know, there was there's a great story about Frank Sinatra kind of hijacking him for his 40th birthday. He just ran into Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra said, meet me at the airport. And this guy said, uh, why? I'm busy. Where are we going? And Frank said, I'm going to show you how to cut loose. So the guy <laughs> said, you can't say no to Frank Sinatra. So he went to, to Burbank Airport, met Sinatra, had no idea where he was going. And then he got to hang out at Sinatra's exclusive club, got to see the Rat Pack perform. And that's how he celebrated his 40th birthday. How cool. But he's got all these great stories. He was he was very good friends with Jane Mansfield and, you know, these big names. It, someone my age, you know, probably means less to than someone of Antonio's age. But, mm. you know, people who watched all of these classic movies back in Hollywood's golden era, would, would love the stories in here uh, just for the sake of Hollywood and, and history. But then getting into some of the, the strange stories about um, technology that 
he and his partner developed. And his partner developed a lot of interesting technology before they formed their partnership. He was involved with Howard Hughes and alleges that he created some technology that rubbed certain people the wrong way and, and was actually stolen, like uh, perpetual motion machines. That and, Howard Hughes had built these? Uh, he was possibly involved, but no, his his partner, Klein's oh. partner, Hall, oh, okay. had invented a perpetual motion machine, um, a car that ran off water, and that wow. car was mysteriously stolen. So. So there's some interesting stories in this book. So this um, book is mostly about his life. About what percentage of it is a, is well, it's his, about it's his memoir. It's, it's his story of right. of his his uh, experiences in Hollywood, and uh, probably probably about half of the book talks about you know the mysterious stuff that this this camera wow. can photograph and, and different UFO stories and things like that. Now it says there's like hundreds of pictures or like a hun- well, at hundreds, least 100 hundreds of photos total in the book. Okay, and but not all of these are thousands the... of photos and no, they're not all of UFOs and and strange things. There are some of these photos in the book and they show things um that look like, you know, apparitions, ghosts, um there's some hmm. that look like they could be UFOs in the sky. They're pretty interesting. But like I said, I haven't finished finished the book yet, but uh, I find it pretty exciting so far. Well, what do you think of the pictures? Well, I think some of them are pretty fascinating, um, especially some of the apparitions. They look really bizarre. Mm. Um, and again, these are things that were not seen uh, when the photos were taken, and they were only visible with this special lens. With what the guy did, who invented this lens, was took side by side you know, just seconds apart mm-hmm. photos with a regular lens and this special lens that he invented. Interesting. And so the special lens would pick up on things the regular lens didn't. I wonder what took him so long, because they took these pictures like in the 70s or something, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's from the 70s, but they seemed very hesitant because they didn't want it getting out, it seems like. They didn't want to tell people about it, you know, for fear of ridicule or, or perhaps... Hmm. Because of these other projects this guy had been involved in, and certain people had already uh, kind of been had had it in for him. So interesting. But I don't know. It's an interesting story, mm-hmm. and you know these people were were some major players in Hollywood. Yeah, cool. And this guy was a big time inventor too. So it's a very interesting story. I do suggest reading the book. It's 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 fun so far, but the pictures are are mysterious and worth checking out. Cool. Very cool, and I think you would like it, Alejandro. Yeah, sounds neat. All right, in other news, we have more UFO petitions. Uh, We talked briefly about this last week, but uh, in early November, the White House officially responded to two UFO petitions on their We the People section of the White House website. The White House stated that the, quote, U.S. government has no evidence that any life exists outside our planet or that an extraterrestrial presence has contacted or engaged any member of the human race. Authors of the petition, as well as some supporters of the petitions, were hoping for a different response. As we discussed last week, Stephen Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, uh, who authored one of the initial petitions, announced his follow-up petition that was submitted to the We the People section of the White House website on December 1st, calling for, quote, the Obama administration to demand a full congressional investigation of UFO ET disclosure efforts by the Clinton OSTP, the Rockefeller Initiative. But Bassett's petitions have received criticism for their combative wording and conspiracy-oriented nature. A new petition that went live last week takes a different approach. 
Hollywood writer, producer Bryce Zabel, and UFO historian, author Richard Dolan are the authors of the petition calling for the White House to, quote, investigate unidentified aerial phenomena as reported by citizens, police, astronauts, pilots, and the military. The detailed description of the petition reads, searching for microbes on Mars and radio signals from space is not enough. We must explain unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAP, right here on Earth. For six decades, worldwide credible witnesses, including President Carter and Reagan, have consistently described objects with flight capabilities beyond our technology. UAP are often verified by radar and even seen at nuclear sites by military officers. Given the national security implications, the United States should conduct an independent investigation. This inquiry must transparently review the key unsolved UAP reports with access to classified documents. It must have the power to call witnesses and grant immunity. The findings should be publicly presented. So these uh, two petitions are currently live on the We the People section of the White House website. And as of this morning, I believe the Bassett petition had about 1,500 signatures, and the Dolan uh, Zabel petition has about 1,000. Yeah, that's what I saw not too long ago. So we'll see what happens. 25,000 signatures is a lot. I've got the um, a banner at ufodailynews.com for the Dolan Zabel one because I like the wording. I think, you know, you got to kind of take some baby steps here and at least get them to talk about UFOs in general before going all the way to the ET idea. And they're listing me as a co-sponsor on the site. I'm so proud of that. And so I think that's our best shot to get a decent answer from the White House. Uh, I'm not so sure, and I keep getting the feedback that people are a little confused with the wording for the Bassett one. But really, you know, people sign both. It doesn't hurt to sign both. If you appreciate them both and you're into the subject, go ahead and sign them both. That's that's awesome. That's cool. So, you know, no need to pick one over the other or, or kind of scratch your head over it. So it's exciting. We'll see what happens. I mean, they they upped the ante or the up the. Uh, they certainly have a, 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 a tall road to climb, I guess. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, already the fifth of December, and they've only got twenty five more days. So. Yeah, twenty five days. So that's about a thousand a day. So come on, people, you're out there. You're listening to the show. Yeah. If if all of our listeners uh, sign the petition, we would have like half. We get more, a lot more listeners than that on a monthly basis, or at least listens to the show. Yeah, so. we can start two petitions and fill them up. Yep. But yeah, good luck to them. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Again, 25,000 is, is a big number to get to, um, and after five days, or slightly more for the Bryce Abel, I think theirs went live on November 30th. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, to only have 1,000 um, after that many days, we've got to pick up the pace. Yeah, so get out there, you know. I mean... Uh, go ahead and sign it. It's it's fun. I mean, you can see. We'll see what happens. And I I do know that we received many um, messages. They don't know. I'm not sure why people contacted us with this issue, but there were a lot of issues reported to us about the White House, about the We the People website. Uh, people reporting um, the page timing out or not loading or or giving them an error or something like that. We had many people contact us with issues like that, but again, it's not our petition. It's the White it's the White House website. They they deal with all the technical stuff. So, if you try to sign the petition and can't contact them, so your vote counts. Yep, check it out. 
All right. We'll move on to another story, Alejandro, and this is a topic you and I discuss frequently on the show, and I like pointing out these stories. Many journalists and people in the general public hold the inaccurate belief that the search for intelligent extraterrestrial life elsewhere in the universe is an enterprise conducted only by overweight sci-fi dorks living in their parents' basements. The reality is that respected scientists from around the world have been actively searching for extraterrestrials for decades. A recent article published by Space Daily contained a wonderful quote, most scientists think that we are not alone in the universe. Many of NASA's missions involve searching for signs of life in space. NASA uh, released a publication on September 2011 titled The Global Exploration Roadmap, which outlines plans to explore our solar system. And the first objective listed on this roadmap is, quote, search for life. NASA also recently launched their latest Mars rover, the world's largest or the world, yeah, the world's largest extraterrestrial explorer that will comb the red planet's surface looking for signs of life. But aside from NASA, scientists at universities and major research institutions are actively participating in the extraterrestrial search. An article published last week in Harvard University's daily newspaper, the Harvard Crimson, accurately states, quote, discovering extraterrestrial life is not a new goal on mankind's to-do list, end quote. The field of astrobiology the study of and search for life in the universe has gained momentum in recent years, and new academic programs in the field are appearing at universities around the country. And just last week, NASA and the Library of Congress announced the establishment of the Baruch S. Bloomberg NASA Library of Congress Chair in Astrobiology, housed within the John W. Klug Center at the Library of Congress. According to the Harvard Crimson, Harvard physics professor and electrical engineer Par Horowitz is a leading figure in the search for intelligent extraterrestrial life, he was one of the early pioneers of the SETI Institute, which was founded by Frank Drake, a doctoral alumnus of the Harvard Astronomy Department. Horowitz's SETI work primarily involves using radio telescopes to listen to signals from aliens technology. There's another Harvard professor, David Charbono, is one of the world's leading experts on exoplanets. And according to the Harvard Crimson, he believes that within three years, man will likely discover habitable planets on which life could thrive. Wow. And Harvard is just one example illustrating the reality that leading scientists are participating in the search for extraterrestrial life. That's the point you and I tried to drive home, Alejandro. I love that quote like that you had highlighted there that, uh, you know, most scientists, because you and I discussed that last week. I love that quote so much. Yeah. Most scientists believe that mm -hmm. intelligent extraterrestrial life is out there. Because often when people, the media are writing these stories, they have the impression that that's not the case when right. uh, that is the case. It certainly is. And, you know, to build on that last story, there was a an, an announcement from NASA today that uh, they discovered an alien planet within its host star's habitable zone at uh, a press conference today. Um, NASA said this planet, Kepler-22b, that's a planet we've mentioned on the show before, is the first planet to be discovered in the habitable zone, the region where liquid water could exist on the planet's surface. The discovery was made by NASA's planet-hunting Kepler Space Telescope, which also just discovered more than 1,000 new planet candidates. In February 2011, the Kepler team reported 54 potential planets in the habitable zone, but of those 54, Kepler-22b is the first to be confirmed. According to Space.com, of the total 2,326 candidate planets that Kepler has found to date, 207 are approximately Earth-sized, more of them, 680, are a bit larger than our planet, falling into the super-Earth category. Including Kepler's latest discoveries, the current number of candidate planets in the habitable zones of their stars is 48. But again, those are just candidates. 
only Kepler-22b has been confirmed. Kepler-22b orbits a star similar to our own, and Space.com explains that scientists believe the discovery of this planet brings us, quote, one step closer to finding a planet like our own, one which could conceivably harbor life. Cool. I like the way you say habitable. Habitable. You just kind of have to let that one roll. Otherwise, you're going to flub. Yeah. Exciting. We've said habitable on this show so many times. So Yeah. Kind of kind of have some practice in We're there. We're habitable pros. Habitable. But I have a story here, Alejandro, that is breaking news. Ba-ba-bum. Breaking news here on Open Minds Radio. This did is it, a story did, did, did. that... Uh, our our uh, colleague Antonio Huneas just broke today, and he just finished writing the story uh, before the show started. I haven't had a chance to get it posted to our website. Okay, but, a couple minutes to tell us about it. Uh, but the the story will go live. You can check it tomorrow. But a German citizen, Frank Reitmeier, was bothered by the fact that citizens of other nations like France, England, Canada, and the U.S. could access some government UFO files but Germany's government hasn't made any UFO files available to the public. He specifically wanted to access a confidential study prepared by the research services of the Department of Science and Foreign Relations of the German Bundestag, the federal parliament. So what did Frank do? He sued the government, and the Berlin, the Berlin Administrative Court sided with him on the, matter, on the matter. The defendant, the German federal parliament, is of course appealing the, ru- the ruling, but this guy basically wanted to see this UFO study that had been leaked um, some time ago, this study from 2009. And the court decided that because all the guy wanted to do was read it, there was nothing wrong with that. So they're ordering the, the federal parliament to release this study for people to read. Yeah, that's pretty cool that he sued the government and won. We'll see what happens next, though, because... Just because you sue the government and win doesn't mean you're going to get what you want, unfortunately. That is so true. But interesting, yeah, an actual government being sued over UFO file. So. Yeah, it's cool because I thought that that story was not true. Uh, I had read a little blurb, that, right. but it was very vague. Um, and so it's great that Antonio did some more research. And you guys, or there'll be a story up. By tomorrow, right? And uh, yes, will tomorrow, tomorrow to... very early morning, it will be on our website, openminds.tv. Awesome. And yes, all, all the credit goes to Antonio Huneas on this. Um, I, I was with you. I, I thought at first this story was fake because the initial source I saw, the English source, was not a very credible source. Mm-hmm. But he did more digging and found that this is all over German news right now, all over the major wow. media. Cool. So it's, it's going to be a great story. Check it out on openminds.tv. He really did an in-depth as much as he could in, into this story. So, Sweet. All right. Well, Alejandro, that is it for the news. Remember to check out all of these stories and so many more at openminds.tv, your source for UFO-related news. I'm Jason McClellan, your Open Minds news correspondent, and you've been briefed. Back to you, Alejandro. Thank you, Jason. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, just before we get into our interview, i uh, give you an update on my Huffington Post stories. I wrote one on the Ridley Scott, and I think Jason had – well, Jason had written one that we talked about last week. And so I expanded on the whole Ridley Scott and the ancient alien theory and how that theory helped to inspire the uh, a lot of the new movie Prometheus that he's doing, an alien universe movie. He doesn't like to call it a prequel, but it's about the space jockey. So it's kind of cool. And then – 
I'm writing another one on Spielberg. There's some stories out there about Spielberg and E.T. and how at first his idea that these E.T. was going to be a bad guy and a mean little critter. And we'll go more into that because it's based on his idea for what he wanted to do, real alleged alien cases. So you can read more about that, too. Very cool. Maybe we'll talk more about it next week. But we want to get into the interview. So let's go ahead and get Micah on the phone. I'm really happy to be talking to him. I am happy to have on the show Micah Hanks. Micah, are you there? Absolutely, Alejandro. Thank you for having me on. Well, uh, you know, I first came across um, some of your material from Ryan Sprague, who writes for uh, Open Minds magazine, mm-hmm. and uh, he had included you in an interview about UFOs and, and the current state of things, and kind of taking you as one a, a younger perspective uh, on things, um, because as you know, you know. For the most part, the crowd is uh, a little older. I mean, uh, what do you think? What do you think the differences are between the, the age in researchers? Well, I'll tell you this: um, many of my uh, mentors in the field, you know, have been people like Brad Steiger, you know, Lauren Coleman. Because as many of the listeners may know, although I'm primarily, uh, you know, kind of concentrated on the field of ufology, I do dabble in other areas, and over the years, have had a lot of different interests. Uh, Brad Steiger, who I mentioned, is one who's very much in that kind of uh, you know domain in terms of you know really having a hand in in all different areas of the unexplained. But uh, again, you know, Brad, of course, also edited the uh, the official publications of Project Blue Book when they were uh, released as a mass market paperback. So mm-hmm. you know, he also is well known as a ufologist. But you know, when when we look at the uh, the demographics, so to speak, and the age differences between people, I think that the thing is is that in this modern Society, while there are a lot of younger researchers like myself, and I'm only 28 years old, that really blows a lot of people mm-hmm. away with that, I guess, just because I don't put that out there a whole lot. And there is a preconception that most people who are doing this are probably going to be middle-aged, you know, maybe in their 40s or older. Um, I think that uh, it may have something to do with, you know, kind of the media and the way that media is presented and, and the way that culture has kind of wrapped itself around that these days with social networking and things like that. You know, I noticed that younger people maybe aren't more involved in things like politics and the like, but they certainly are involved today in a very different way than how they were several decades ago. I think it's, it's very much the same thing also with uh, you know unexplained phenomena and ufology and the like. Uh, I think that people aren't involved maybe any less, perhaps not any more, but it's a different kind of involvement, and I think that it's more generalized as a result of, again, the way that media t- tends to kind of approach these sorts of subjects and the availability of social media and, and social networking websites. People put things out there. It's kind of anecdotal. It's entertaining, but a lot of people don't take it incredibly seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be someone of the uh, of the younger age group, you know, I, I uh, pride myself in being one who does try to take it very ser- uh, seriously and from a pretty journalistic approach to studying this sort of thing. Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting about Ryan's uh, story. He interviewed a lot of people, and kind of like you said, I agree with you. And, and some of the things you were saying, Nick Pope, who, although he's he's kind of one of the old school guys, I think he has a more modern view of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, it's not that there's not people involved. I think there are. I think with the ratings from some of these television shows like Ancient Aliens or um, you know, Fact or Fake, that the audience is there, the people are there, but they're looking at things differently. You know, you had people who I love to death, but he was the the perfect representative of kind of the grouchy old guy almost. And I can say that because I know he has a great sense of humor. But Jim Mars, 
in that story was kind of the guy, oh, the kids don't pay attention. If they would quit getting on their computer and look up uh, from their computer or their phone once in a while, they'll discover things. And a lot of people are looking out in the crowds at the conferences and at the, at the meetings, and they're saying, where are the young people? But that's not their thing, you know? They don't want to go and sit in a lecture as much as they want to read stories um, like what you do. You know, you do podcasting, you do online, so do we. And we do. There are these large online audiences, and you're able to reach a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. And I have to say again, you know, tossing an endorsement out here real quick. Your website is one of the very best on the web. Uh, you know, I've enjoyed it thoroughly, even prior to this interview. And uh, the other thing too is that you know, I think that the podcasting element. This is so important because people. There is such a great demand these days for audio content, or you know, video content as well. But I think that audio is still kind of. Uh, kind of has its own niche, we'll say, because people are really interested in having things that they can download, you know, at their own leisure, on demand, as they say, and take it with them. You know, terrestrial radio is always going to, I think, have, you know, a certain following because, you know, it's free and people can jump in their car and they can turn on radio. But with the availability of podcasting and the ability to download audio in all different kinds of genres and formats onto your smartphone or onto your iPhone or your iPad or whatever and take it with you on the road, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, or, or take it with you on a jog, take it with you to the gym, any place, you know. I think, uh, you know, I even get emails from people who listen to my podcast, The Grayling Report, and they're like, yeah, we sit around, you know, we listen to it together, you know, my wife and I. Right. Uh, every Tuesday night, you know. So it, it's great because I think that there is an accessibility that this provides for people. And that makes the podcasting format particularly important because people will seek it out and they will take it with them and they will listen. They're not going to miss it because they know where to find it and they can listen whenever they want to. Yeah, it blows my mind. We put a lot of effort, like, you know, we did the UFO Congress. I used to be involved with MUFON, and we'd do that conference. We'd put a lot of effort into those conferences, and you would have, you know, like, for instances, last year, we had 1,000 to 2,000 people at the UFO Congress. That was great. Oh, yeah. But we, on a weekly basis with the podcast, we meet, we reach much, much, much more people than that. And even though it's kind of quiet and in the background – Really, this is where you know you're you're we're reaching masses um on a regular basis, and there are those people out there, oh yes, absolutely, most certainly and in any way that people can be reached, I think that's important i mean and a great example of this is uh, Richard Dolan, you know, has just mm-hmm. uh, put together a brand new, and I'm sure you probably were going to bring this up um but the new petition, which I think in my personal opinion, is worded uh, so well it will get around a lot of the semantic arguments that were brought forth uh you know following the first. Uh, you know, a uh, petition that the uh, uh, Paradigm Research Group put out. Richard Dolan's done this, and he's got videos up on the on the web. And what I'm sincerely hoping, including through podcasts like this and my own and others, that you know that people will tap into their to their crowd, to their fan base and and, and the listenership, and that they'll say, "Now listen, this one could be taken seriously. Go check it out. It's worth your time to take five minutes. You know, sign up, uh, sign this petition." Uh, you know, I, I'll just be frank with you. I didn't take the first one incredibly seriously because of the wording. It, it kind of jumped to the conclusion and used that extraterrestrial word. UFOs may represent extraterrestrials for all we know. But the thing is, is that scientifically we have to also play by the rules of the establishment who aren't going to endorse that kind of an idea openly. Uh, when you use the term UFO, that's a much harder thing to discount. You, it's a much harder time you're going to have saying that UFOs don't exist because we do see things in the sky, and there are government documents that are released every year around the world that, that detail that. Uh, this new petition, I think, is going to do a much better job, and what I hope is that you know, the podcasts and that the crowds you know, who, who download these kinds of programs you know, will, will be educated and, and you know, hear about this and that they'll you know, be uh, encouraged to go and sign that petition. This one might actually get somewhere. 
You know, I was going to bring that up uh, because it is, especially among the, the listeners we have here, a little controversial, you know, um, because, you know, people have their different perspectives about this field and, and which perspective to take and how to go forward. And I was going to ask you because, um, you know, I talked with Nick Redfern last week, and we'll get more into that because I know you guys have some similar uh, perspective on things. Mm-hmm. But um, the I feel like you, when I saw, and I had, you know, um, Stephen Bassett on, and we talked about it, um, I did feel like you said that, you know, working with the establishment, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that there are some some things that we can accomplish by doing that. And when we are kind of stepping forward, and I was challenging Bassett, you know, if you went to, let's say, one of these um, politicians and and you had to tell them there is proof for extraterrestrial visitation, what would you cite? And he kind of said, I'd send them to the web, to the, to the Internet because there's so much evidence. You have to be really more particular uh, uh, and more... Um, you know, send me more exact, I think. And uh, I agree with you with this new petition. It's getting at more of the root of uh, just sticking to that there is an existence of a phenomena. And mm-hmm. there we have, we do have some very, very, very credible uh, photographs, uh, witnesses, and a much stronger case that the phenomena exists in the first place and the mainstream hasn't gone there yet. So let's take that first step. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. You know, again, if, if someone were to ask me, if you needed to try and convince, you know, an elected official or someone like that, uh, that UFOs existed, uh, well, you know, again, first of all, I'm not going to use that expression extraterrestrial because I think that there are too many cultural stigmas attached to that. I also recognize that if I'm going to go speak to my congressman or my senator, for instance, uh, you know, and I bring up UFOs, they have a cultural obligation by virtue of being in politics to be very dismissive toward those kinds of uh statements and those kind of approaches from the media and from and from their constituency. I mean, that's just how it is. You know, we've had a few uh, exceptions. I think Barry Goldwater, of course, you know, had taken quite an interest in UFOs and a number of U.S. presidents, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, uh, had, had uh, of course, you know, asked, uh, I think, uh, I think it was Webb Hubble. Um, and Jim Mars talked about this in his, in, his, uh, in his book, Rule by Secrecy. He said, I want you to find out two things, you know, who killed JFK and what's going on with UFOs. Jimmy Carter also asked about it. Ronald Reagan, you know, said that he had followed one when he was governor of California. And Carter's interest stemmed from, you know, an incident that had occurred uh, with him when he was the governor of Georgia. So there have been politicians that have been interested, but culturally, that is something that I think that, again, in that mainstream political spectrum, you're, you're encouraged to downplay. So Again, you know, you have to be very careful, and I don't think it's a bad thing at all. In fact, I think we cannot look at it as a bad thing in terms of, you know, quote-unquote playing by their rules. We have to in order to to progress. And so, first of all, if anyone told me you've got to convince politician A that there is evidence, you know, supporting, like you said, Alejandro, some sort of phenomenon, the first thing I would say is, well, we don't use the extraterrestrial term. We, We realize that there is indeed a stigma attached to that. But you can talk about UFOs all day, and I'm not going to direct them to something as ambiguous as the Internet. I'm going to say, listen, go to – and I'll give you a link. Go to the NSA's website where they have disclosed mm-hmm. a multitude of documents about, the, about UFOs, and you guys have some excellent articles about those at your website. You go to the FBI.gov website. They also have a portal to unexplained phenomenon that deals with a variety of things, not just UFOs. The Central Intelligence Agency also has one. If these varying branches of intelligence within our own U.S. government have already – 
taken an interest in these subjects and have already disclosed some information about them, that's all the evidence that these elected officials should need. And if anyone doesn't take that seriously, then they're not taking the intelligence gathering process seriously at all, because these intelligence organizations are the very ones who have laid the groundwork and who have engaged in that sort of research for decades already. Yep, that's a good point. Now that we're on this subject of these petitions, um, of course, Bassett is putting out a second petition, uh, and his is um, focused around calling for congressional investigations into what you had mentioned, um, Bill Clinton and his interests, along with uh, with Rockefeller, who is really trying to get Bill Clinton to do more research. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that the wording of the um, Bryce Zabel, actually, and, and um, Richard Dolan uh, petition is better than that? Well, they don't ever say extraterrestrial in their petition. Mm-hmm. And I was reviewing both documents earlier today. Uh, I'll tell you this. Um, the, the new uh, petition that the, the Paradigm Group has, has released, uh, again, says UFO slash ET this time. Uh, the, I don't think they made as, you know, much emphasis on the UFO angle in the first petition at all. It was almost entirely references to extraterrestrials and the like. Now they kind of realize, because, you know, among others, uh, you know, another uh, contributor to the Huffington Post was Leslie Kane, who said, look, you know, using that word extraterrestrial over and over and over again in that petition, what did you expect the response was going to be? And I think that, you know, they've kind of caught wind of that and realized now that, you know, things have to be kind of reworded in a way that's a little more palpable if they want to get an official, again, a official response. Uh, Dolan uh, and, and, and Bryce's uh, uh, petition, I think, is, is better because it, although it says UFOs, and UAP referring only to unidentified, you know, aerial phenomenon and, and you know, flying objects that cannot be identified. They never make mention of extraterrestrial life except for the the opening sentence, which talks about, you know, looking for life on Mars and things like that isn't enough. And I agree. Uh, while there's a potential that UFOs may represent extraterrestrial life, we can't rule that out. We just don't have, according to our own scientific methodology, evidence that supports that. Now, there's a lot of kind of circumstantial evidence that points us in that direction, but like uh, Michio Kaku has said, uh, it's, it's funny, I saw him during an interview, and they asked him, they said, you know, you say UFOs exist. Does this mean that extraterrestrial life exists? And he says, well, yes, and, and the thing is is that we've looked at all these different options, and the most likely is that some of these UFO sightings do indeed uh, involve an intelligence from, you know, outside planet Earth. And so he said, so the anchor asking the question said, well, Dr. Kaku, does this mean that we now have proof of ET life elsewhere in, in the stars? And he says, well, no, not at all, because we don't have, you know, a, a, a biological sample. You know, we can't, we, we don't have something that we can extract DNA from. And so without that, we still don't have proof. And that's pretty well worded. Again, it's very likely that some UFO phenomenon could represent extraterrestrial intelligence from outside our planet. But the thing is, is we don't have that biological sample to our knowledge to support that. And when we asked for that very thing in the last petition, we saw what the White House response was going to be. So we have to take things one step at a time. UFO is the key word. That's the word that is used throughout the petition by Dolan. And I think that that's going to be more effective than actually garnering attention. You know what? I think you brought up uh, a great example there with Michio Kaku, because here we're talking about a mainstream scientist. Mm -hmm. And I think the thought process that, you know, you shared right there is similar to the thought process that mainstream science is going to take if they take UFOs seriously, and that is to first look at the phenomena, look at the likely, because that's what, you know, if if we are able to make people take that first step, especially mainstream science, to take 
UFOs seriously. I think then they will come up with their hypothesis as uh, hypothesi or I don't know how do you say multiple maybe <laughs> you know as to what this phenomenon might be all about. And mm-hmm. I think everybody would agree that the extraterrestrial hypothesis um, seems kind of one of the forefront. It's uh, you know the first possibly most likely explanation. I think that'll come to the surface by itself. You don't have to shove that down people's throats. Uh, I think it's it's a natural occurrence. Although, when it comes to UFOs, there are other ideas about what might be um, behind some of this phenomena. And we talked about this uh, quite a bit with Nick Redburn. And I know you have some uh, unique perspectives there as well. I know you look at paranormal all around, not just UFOs. What are your ideas on how likely the extraterrestrial hypothesis is the answer, or what are the other possibilities? Um, I'll tell you this. Um, Again, to be skeptical, I I always like to draw this distinction between things. Uh, If you say you're a skeptic and you have an interest in the paranormal or the unexplained, uh, I think that uh, right, right offhand, first of all, people who are the quote-unquote believers, and this is again where you start to see how much culture is associated with all this, people who are uh, you know, quote-unquote believers will kind of point the finger at you and say, oh, great, you know, you're one of these guys who's trying to disprove everything. When we're skeptically minded, this doesn't mean that we have to try and disprove anything. Uh, what that means is that we cannot commit ourselves to belief without evidence to support it first. That's really all that means. So when I look at circumstances with regard to uh, you know studying a multitude of different phenomena, uh, I, I try not to you know gravitate toward a conventional notion of what any particular phenomenon may be uh, when there's not hard scientific evidence to back that up. I love it when people come up to me, and this happened just the other day. Uh, you know, what someone on the web had talked about how you know my podcasts, for instance, are garbage because I'm talking about mm-hmm. UFOs and things like that. And the reason that it's garbage is because there's no scientific evidence to substantiate anything you're talking about. Well, first of all, there there certainly is evidence to substantiate UFOs. We've already gone over where you can find that evidence, so let's not be redundant here. But the thing is, is that again, I pointed out to this individual. I said I've never made the claim, and this is what this person asserted. They said that. You know, there's no proof that these things are extraterrestrial. And if anything, they're probably secret government craft. And I said, well, you know, if you'd listened to, to my podcast, you would know, um, as my listeners do, that I don't accept, you know, this, this conventional notion that UFOs absolutely without question represent extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, you know, and again, the reason why is because there's not scientific evidence that supports that. I, uh, I, you know, respect the likelihood but I don't commit to belief. Now that said, when we look at the other alternatives, well, what could they be then, as stated by this individual and by many others, and I've even gravitated toward this some uh, myself in the past, there probably are a number of government projects, you know, secret government projects that involve, uh, you know, advanced um, aircraft and, and even weaponry and things like that that have at times been mistaken uh, for and and you really can't mistake something for something else that you don't know what the the alternative is to begin with. You know we mm-hmm. call all these things UFOs. A secret government craft, by virtue of being unidentified, is also a UFO. There's the physical anomaly angle that can be uh, appended to this as well. The notion that for whatever reason there may be uh, what we might call extraterrestrial or even interdimensional intelligences. Uh, that could be in some way, shape, or form interacting with our dimension, 
or if you want to remove dimensions from the equation altogether, it could be you know some sort of some sort of intelligence, some sort of sentient consciousness trying to uh, contact our uh, three-dimensional perspective from kind of high, a, a, a higher uh, level of reality, perhaps you know a pre-material level of reality. So Jacques Vallée has gotten into some of this, and also uh, an associate of mine by the name of Dr. Maxim Kammerer, and and these kind of approaches to studying UFOs, I think, force the mind to reconsider the possibilities and thereby expand our own notion of what not just any particular phenomenon may be, but what our role as three-dimensional organic beings in reality as we perceive it may be. And I have gravitated more and more toward that approach to trying to understand the greater reality and how UFOs play into that. And when you look at it from that perspective, I've found that, that you, will, you will tend to notice that there are a lot of really nuts and bolts reports that to me are, without question, some kind of intelligently controlled technological craft and probably originating from here on planet Earth. There are a number of reports that are far stranger and can't be so easily explained, but again, this points to, I think, something that is, if anything, uh, something that will force us to kind of re, uh, redefine our perspectives on reality. And, and in order to greatly uh, appreciate this and, and, of course, to understand it in its totality, eventually more people are going to have to think like that, in my opinion. And, and it's not going to get us anywhere to continue saying that UFOs don't exist and that there's no evidence for them, because that simply isn't the case either. Yeah, you know, um, when some of these points that you bring up, some of the, um, a lot of people will, and some of the listeners may get frustrated that, you know, um, people aren't just adhering to this extraterrestrial answer and that's it and that's all there is. But I think there is something we can learn from science is that when you don't know what something is, it's very dangerous to pin it down and say this is what it is until you have that that proof uh, of what's going on because often we've seen in science that when they they observe a phenomena you put forward theories and sometimes some theories get very popular dark matter for instance we don't know what the heck that is there's so much disagreement but the media is always talking about dark matter dark matter we don't know that that exists we don't know the answer towards these phenomena that they're seeing with gravity and space and the yeah. answers that we find are typically much, much more complicated than we ever could have imagined. And I certainly agree that, you know, um, that could be the case um, in dealing with the UFO phenomena or abduction and these other phenomena that people are experiencing. Oh, absolutely. And with regard to abduction, I'll just say this uh, to keep it short, that although uh, many people who have claimed to have been abducted have been uh, you know, also uh, people who claim that they've been taken aboard what appeared to be a flying saucer or other, you know, similar aircraft described in UFO reports. I, I think that, again, it, it can even get dangerous. And see, this would probably sound absurd to a lot of people who've read and, and followed ufology, you know, for, for a number of years like myself, even a number of decades. But I think that it can become dangerous when we look at alien abduction solely as some kind of phenomenon that is directly associated with UFOs. Uh, because we cannot necessarily draw a parallel between the two. Now, I, I will say that you know there are some abduction reports that are very compelling. Uh, the the Hickson uh, encounter there from Pascagoula, uh, <clears throat> uh, what was it, uh, Mississippi, back in 1973, where Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker were abducted. Uh, they'd been sitting on a, and this is well known, so I don't have to get into all the details, but they were sitting, of course, on a 
on a pier and they were they were fishing next to a bayou saw a blue light the first thing to point out here is that you know again according to FAA standards uh, you're not supposed to have blue lights typically on aircraft you'll see red and green and white lights but uh, again this blue object comes down hovers over the bayou and then these beings come out uh, they approach Hickson and Parker take them on board and you know perform these kind of examinations on them and then release these gentlemen they weren't uh, unlike uh, a lot of you know stories told by abductees Hickson and Parker, they weren't, uh, you know, lying in their beds at night. They they didn't, you know, have a missing time period uh, for the most part. I mean, I think that they became very disoriented during this experience because of the terrifying nature of it. Um, but but they literally were sitting there. They saw the the object come down. They were taken aboard, and then they were brought back by these strange-looking, slightly anthropomorphic beings. And they were both so scared afterward that they first said, you know, we're not going to tell anybody about this. So that was, you know, and then they, of course, relented and went to the sheriff, and uh, only after going to the newspaper, you know, they were going to try and get the story out, and it was all over the AP the next day that these two men had allegedly been taken aboard an object from space. But a lot of abduction reports don't begin the same way that Calvin uh, uh, Parker and, and Charles Hickson's story did. They, you know, the abductee typically is lying in bed. They might feel a presence. They may wake up on board the craft. There are a number of instances where people literally have the experience and there's no mention of a flying saucer. But, you know, I think that it's it's difficult, again, looking at the, the multitude of data out there, it's, it becomes difficult not to associate those two. And I'm not saying that they aren't related, but what I would say is that if we want to understand the phenomenon better, we should probably look at them independently before we consider, you know, lumping them all together and saying that this is the sum totality of what we understand about UFOs. Part of it is that there are these aliens that take people on board these spaceships. For all we know... There may not be any kind of an, you know, an alien gray as we know it. This could be, uh, and this is getting kind of far out there, but I think it's worthy of, of speculation. It could be that an advanced intelligence literally projects images of abduction encounters into the mind of a uh, of an alleged abductee uh, because the attempt at communication with a three dimensional being like a human uh, in relation to this advanced intelligence may be so great that this wouldn't even be something that would be perceptible without the apparent intrusion in a physical sense into that individual's reality and so it could be that the entire abduction scenario is actually kind of a uh, kind of a holographic or a, or a mental construct that although it's indeed indeed very terrifying and strange for many people it's something that humans can relate to better in terms of trying to reconcile with a greater intelligence than our own now i'm just speculating but that again is is one interpretation if we're indeed going to have in you know some sort of interaction with a greatly greatly more advanced intelligence than ours uh, in all likelihood, we wouldn't recognize it as being an intelligence to begin with unless they came down to our level. And, and I'll bring up Michio Kaku's, uh, one of his uh, examples again here. He says, you, you can see an entire colony of ants by the side of the road, hmm. and they're going up to their business. They've got their little, their little nest and everything two feet from a major highway, and they're virtually unaware of the fact that there is a vastly greater technologically oriented intelligence that's whizzing by them literally just two feet away. So it very well may be the, the, the same for humans that there could be a, 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 a vastly more uh, intelligent species that is constantly interacting with us, but they have to level with us in such a way that we can perceive them. And that could be the very summation of the, the abduction experience for all we know, but we really don't know. And therefore, we have to kind of break things apart. And I advocate looking at abduction and UFO uh, reports separately from one another for that reason. Right. And I agree as far as when um, you have an abduction experience that doesn't include a UFO sighting, like some do, like you mentioned, Hickson, there there are others, there's Pascagoula, Betty and Barney Hill, but 
And uh, however, like you said, many of those situations don't. The other problem that I have is a lot of people seem to kind of brush off. It's hard to reconcile that the messages that people get during these experiences or in simple contactee cases, uh, they're different. Um, there's, it's not like the, you know, the, the general what happens to them is similar. However, the messages and the details of who these beings are and why they're here and where they come from are always vastly different. And sometimes people will come to me saying, well, why don't you, you know, talk more about this case? Why don't you believe in this case? Why don't you believe in that case? And it's not that I don't believe in any of them. I'm open to, to all of it. But how can I put all my eggs in one basket or put my eggs in all these different baskets in these, when the story, the stories don't jive? How right. can all of these different things be true? Absolutely. And, and the other thing, too, is that so many of the abduction reports, uh, in terms specifically of the information that is supplied to the abductee, uh, it, it often is so personal uh, in, in, in terms of the significance of the information with regard to the individual who has received it. I mean, a, a classic example that has been uh, mentioned so many times is uh, what was described in the Andreessen Affair, the book by uh, Ray Fowler, which talked about how Betty, the the, uh, the abductee herself, was literally taken to what she perceived to be an alien environment. I'll stop short of saying a planet, but it very well may have been that, you know, at least in her perception it was. And uh, that, you know, there were little alien critters crawling all around and everything, and she was taken kind of up this conveyor belt that brought her before it a large bird that then caught on fire, uh, turned into, uh, you know, uh, I think a pile of ashes from which this worm crawled out, and then she heard a voice speak to her and, and use obviously, what were obviously Judeo-Christian overtones and references to God and Jesus. And, of course, Betty, uh, as I recall, being a, a devout Catholic, I, it's very interesting to me that she had this profound Christian experience. And even the, the, the symbology associated with the bird burning up, that sounds very much like the the, uh, the, uh, the legend of the phoenix, which in early Christian iconography was representative of the rebirth that is associated with the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, you know, that I think is, is a good example of how so often the information imparted to the, uh, the contactees or the abductees is very deeply personal and even has spiritual and religious overtones that have direct pertinence to their belief system. And that isn't necessarily something that I think should take away from the, the uh, nature of the experiences, but I think what it certainly ca causes us to question is uh, indeed what the, the, uh, the nature of the communication is and if there is any uh, need, really, for looking at these, these messages delivered by alleged alien occupants of these UFOs in terms of being some sort of a systematic message that is being delivered to humankind. It doesn't, like you pointed out already, it doesn't seem to be that that's the case. There is a great variety in terms of the things that are being delivered. I think, you know, um, yeah, those are some good points. And um, getting back to your speculation uh, and talking about, you know, how you had a, this speculation that you were talking about, but it's informed speculation. I don't think it's a bad thing and kind of, to be apologetic for of the scientist perhaps a bit, is that um, one of the things that you say you're interested in on your website is a psychology. And a lot of people get frustrated when, because you're kind of touching on that now. 
people mentioned psychology and that there could be um, psycho something going on within the person that is affecting their experience. Of course, some of the psychologists believe that uh, their experiences are completely internal and there is no external component. Um, I think it's important to look at that aspect. I do believe there is an external component, but that these things are mixing and people get frustrated with that. I know, you know, like I said, on your site, you talked about being interested in psychology. Why do you think the psychology is important when looking into this phenomena? Psychology is important because if we if we try and take psychology out of the equation and philosophy too is in terms of uh, of a methodical process of inquiry that we would hope to use to understand nature and reality around us if you take the function of the human mind out of the equation what is there what else is there at all we have to look at things from the psychological perspective because everything is inherently um, based on, and, and in, in truth, really, it's entirely reliant on human interpretation of the phenomena being witnessed. And therefore, we have to take into consideration, first of all, the limitations of the human emotions, because, for instance, often when someone has a UFO encounter, uh, it's a very emotional experience for them. Some people are in awe of what they're seeing. Some people are utterly terrified. Some people have described, you know, feeling other emotions, you know, a cosmic sense of love and unity. Uh, some people have you know gotten the distinct impression that they were being controlled by something malevolent. So you know when it, when we take into consideration the range of the emotions and the way that the emotions and people's emotional stability and their own comfort uh, with a, with a given situation will influence their perception of that uh, circumstance, we have to take into very serious consideration the psychology underlying because this is the best way that we can. And now, again, I think that a lot of people are wary of psychology, and I'll say this first. Uh, because, you know, although psychology is a scientific attempt to try and understand the workings of the mind and human perception, uh, there are also a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> very varieties of interpretation within the, you know, subdivisions, if you will, within, you know, the school of psychology itself. You know, the Jungian uh, perspectives of archetypes and things like that, or the Freudian concepts that, you know, have so much to do with, you know, sex and, and the like. So I think that a lot of people will say that this has been disproven and this is disproven and therefore we can't really rely on a whole lot of the information that has been brought forth in terms of psychological attempts at, at uh, understanding humanity and, and the human mind. But the truth is is that while the perspectives will vary and they will be very different from one another and even contradict one another, they may not be entirely incorrect. I think that each a perspective from a psychological, scientific, religious, anything, uh, you know, are going to have a grain of truth, and we have to take all these things into consideration. So, yes, psychology, I think, is integral to understanding strange phenomena because it has everything to do with the way the human mind will attempt to reconcile with what it is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's important for us to understand because, like you mentioned, with some of the inherent problems of psychology, it is a very new science, mm -hmm. and we're still trying to figure out a lot uh, behind that and what motivates us and how we work. I mean, uh, hypnotherapy is, is is a fairly new thing, and, and how that works, if it works, it certainly, in my experience, does work, but why and how is still uh, being looked at, and can we trust it to, you know, be uh, using court, for example? But... Uh, I think that if we're talking about, even if people believe we are being approached by an advanced civilization, that they would know those things as well. I mean, think if they're just trying to implant a simple idea of peace and love in people, and they send you that message. We're all going to come up with our own elaborate 
um, scenario around this message. Uh, and that could be one of the answers why th this information is so different. But of course, this message could be coming to us from some other source than an extraterrestrial. I mean, I, I agree with you that it's a, psychology is something that we do have to look at. And that's one reason I really appreciated John Mack's work. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, sure, he believed that perhaps this uh, phenomena was a, a non-physical phenomena, but the non-physical parts are not something to um, ignore. That's key right there. That is absolutely key because while there may not be an entirely physical component to abduction, it, that does not rule out the potential for there to be some kind of an intelligent interaction between humankind and another intelligence. I don't think that uh, that, that you know rules out the possibility at all. And the, and the very thing is, is that you know again when you when you mentioned, for instance, hypnosis. Hypnosis has been shown to have an interesting effect. People, for instance, will say this can be hypnotized. They can be taken into what is apparently an altered state of consciousness where they can sometimes recall certain information, but there's a very terrifying uh, susceptibility uh, in, the, in the mind of the hypnotized uh, to, to uh, you know, suggestion, from the, namely from the mm -hmm. hypnotist. That's what's been shown so many times in the past. And the thing is that while hypnotism clearly uh, is a process that, that has certain, uh, you know, uh, repeatable and expected uh, byproducts and effects, it's not something that is fully understood. And, in, and therefore, it is not something that is by any means reliable either. But if you look at ufology and specifically abduction research, you know, uh, let's take into consideration uh, the the, uh, the the work of uh, Bud Hopkins, the late Bud Hopkins, you know, with intruders and his his uh, books about uh, alien abduction and his sessions with people who he eventually began to hypnotize himself and spent time, you know, helping recover memories regarding UFOs and, and alien abductions. Um, it's 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 it certainly isn't something that we can rule out that this is indeed what was going on and that many of these people actually were having remembrances of some sort of circumstance. It may not have been entirely physical as Mac kind of gravitated toward, but what's really concerning to me is that so much of what we understand as the abduction phenomenon is not only rooted in Hopkins' own research, but also in the methodology that was used to obtain those results. And if hypnotism is not something that, like you'd said, Alejandro, it cannot be used in a court of law because of the unreliability factor, uh, can we really base our entire knowledge base of a particular phenomenon, whether it be abduction or anything else, satanic ritual abuse, you know, super soldier mind control, all these different things that are supposedly recovered through hypnosis, can we utilize hypnosis as a reliable method for justifying this kind of information? I just simply do not think that that, that is the case. I don't think that we can. Uh, and though we can't discount the reports of people and their claims and their perception of strange events, uh, I don't think we can substantiate those claims through the use of something we don't understand, like hypnosis. You know, it's really exciting to have this conversation and to have a similar conversation with Nick Redfern last week because I think what it does is open up a lot more possibilities and a lot more research that has to be done in this field. I think a lot of people feel that, you know, this kind of talk has taken a step back that, you know, we already figured out decades ago that UFOs are ETs and ETs are visiting us and now we need the government to admit this because they know that's true too. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, what a lot of people are doing, at least of our generation, is stepping back and taking another look at this and saying, wait a sec, there could be a lot more answers here. And I'm hopeful, and I want to hear what, what you think of the possibilities of this even happening are. I'm hopeful that there will be a lot more Michio Kakus to come. And when you get a lot more Michio Kakus, 
and you use him a lot because you're obviously familiar with his work, and so am I. And he's a, a, a hero because he, he looks at as an open mind. But when you get all those guys together, I think in the future that, and hopefully in the in the you know sooner rather than later, we will have scientific inquiry and perhaps uh, a funded study in this field. And if that happens, I think these are some of the areas that they're going to need to look into. Do you think it's possible for uh, uh, that in you know our environment that a scientific organization could take this on uh, if that's even possible or, or yeah, what are your thoughts there? <laughs> it certainly is possible. Uh, it certainly, certainly is possible. Let, let, I'm glad that you asked that question, Alejandro, because that's a very important subject to address. And it, and it calls into question also the, the history of ufology and, you know, official organizations uh, attempts at trying to, you know, scientifically reconcile with a phenomenon that not only is very difficult to understand, but is, is entirely observable, I, you know, uh, by virtue of the witness, the, the often very vivid eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these, these observations recount objects that are obviously disobeying our known laws of physics. Uh, so when we talk about UFOs and we talk about the scientific establishment trying to reconcile with that, you look all the way back to the late 1940s when the Air Force began serious uh, investigation with regard to UFOs. And I'm not talking about Roswell here per se. I'm talking about you know the Air Force, uh, J. Edward Ruppel, of course, you know whoever saw the uh, the beginnings of Project Blue Book, and uh, and the Air Force's official inquiry into reports of UFOs. If you read, especially the first edition of the report on, uh, on unidentified flying objects that Ruppelt wrote, he points out a lot of schisms within even the Air Force itself, let alone various other branches of government. You know, there were many in the Air Force who were trying to downplay the idea of UFOs. And then Ruppelt, here's the guy who was overseeing Project Blue Book, coming forth, writing a book about this and pointing out the way that, this, that the idea was, you know, widely downplayed by a number of uh, you know, we'll say heavy hitters within his uh, his own organization and within other areas of government as well. Blue Book, nonetheless, was attempting to gather information about UFOs and look at everything logically and scientifically. But the earliest interpretations of UFOs as extraterrestrial phenomenon uh, stem from those years. And I would be quick to point out to people that this, of course, was also a time prior to our own exploration of space as humans. We hadn't gone to the moon yet ourselves. And early in the reports of Project Blue Book, you see hints at scientists who are trying to understand how a extraterrestrial intelligence might literally be able to come to Earth. One of the issues that they were having trouble with, with, with understanding was, get this, how a technological spacecraft could literally uh, survive re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. And they were talking about this. And, and some of the uh, the theories that were thrown up about the anomalous green fireballs seen throughout the Midwest in the late 1940s was that these were actually probes. Get this. <laughs> Extraterrestrial craft might park outside Earth's atmosphere and send probes down, mm-hmm. given the... the, the um, the understanding that these probes, first of all, probably would not want to be something that could be recovered later by Earthlings. And so some scientists, Ruppelt recounts for us, were proposing that maybe they were sending probes down that were intended to begin to burn up as they entered Earth's atmosphere and that they would gather certain, you know, climactic or, uh, uh, or rather, uh, uh, um, atmospheric and climatic, uh, data about planet Earth as they, you know, entered our atmosphere and then they would burn up eventually and that way no one would be able to recover an alien artifact and, and they, their presence wouldn't be known. So these are the kind of theories that were put out. And all this came prior to our own exploration of space, going to the moon and things like this. We were trying to deal with hurdles 
that appeared to be hurdles at the time, and of course now it's rather commonplace to send a satellite or a space shuttle into into space and then bring it back to Earth through, uh, you know, the atmosphere and the reentry process. So, you know, as our science has gotten better and better, we can look at the past and the way that we have, you know, studied UFOs, and we can see that, you know, we've we've grown in leaps and bounds, and yet we can what we seem to fail to do is to notice the preconceptions that stem from that era. Now, I'm not saying, again, that UFOs are not extraterrestrial, but I think that a lot of that perspective comes from that early period prior to our own space exploration and that we may have influenced ourselves in ways that we didn't realize by speculating. Um, now, that said, as Blue Book went along, Blue Book was, uh, you know, I, th- I think that they really had good intentions for a long time there, but then the, the uh, University of Colorado UFO project came on board with Edward Condon. Uh, Arthur Kostler, in his book Janus, uh, it has a compendium in the back, uh, or an appendix rather, called uh, UFOs, a Carnival of Absurdity. And he points out in that in that brief essay regarding UFOs, and the funny thing about that is that I've, I picked that book up because I'm a fan of Kostler's writing, The Roots of Coincidence, and some of these things that don't have any direct relation to UFOs. I bought Janus in a used bookstore because I liked The Roots of Coincidence and his other writing. And he was a Hungarian journalist who primarily had interest in you know, science and politics and things like that, but also wrote every now and then about strange phenomena and psychology. Um, lo and behold, my surprise, you know, when I opened this book and in the back there's this appendix that has to do with UFOs, and in that he points out the way that many who were involved with the Condon Committee were intentionally downplaying the idea of UFO reports by wording the reports in such a way that didn't do so overtly, but that they suggested that the the um, the mental capacity or the perception or the mental state of the witness might be questionable. And then, of course, when the Condon Committee released their official report, it stated that although there may be some merit to the idea that there are UFOs, we don't stand to gain anything from studying them scientifically. What a narrow-minded statement, or at least it should be interpreted as that, but for whatever reason, the Condon Committee came to this conclusion, Project Blue Book was shut down, and forever after, it seems, the media has continued to portray UFOs along the lines of what these two organizations worked so hard, apparently, to do, and that was to discredit, and I don't think that Project Blue Book had intentionally all along tried to discredit ufology, but many in the Air Force had during those years, as evidenced by what Ruppel has already said, the Condon Committee you know, again, you can look at these sorts of documents, and I'd recommend Arthur Kostler's book, Janus, to anyone because it's got that appendix in the back. It'll tell you all about that, and there are other researchers you know all about this, too, who've talked about it. Robert Hastings has mentioned this kind of thing, too. These organizations, for whatever reason, found it, uh, you know, thought it was a good idea to downplay the idea of UFOs, make it look like something that was less likely in the public eye. And since the 1960s, the scientific establishment has followed suit and continued to pursue it that way. You know, now why that is and how we could stand to gain from dismissing a subject is beyond me. <laughs> I don't know how that could be perceived by anyone as being uh, productive. Knowing the rate of expansion of technology that we are seeing before us today. So could science do something and could science try to understand this phenomenon? Yes. But and, and this is something that I think was put very best uh, by a, a researcher who's not incredibly well-known these days. He wrote a book back in the 1990s called Dark White. His name is Jim Schnabel. But he still has a blog that he talks about UFOs and abduction on uh, from time to time. And he mentioned that he thinks the very best thing that ufologists like myself could do is rather than trying to come to determinations about the scientific nature of UFOs ourselves, we should try and put information out in such a way that will make it attractive to the scientific establishment again so that they will take the subject seriously as it was once taken seriously 
you know, in the golden years, so to speak, and so that people will come back to a, 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 a you know, meaningful uh, attempt at trying to understand the phenomenon. And once we do that, I'm, I have no question as to whether or not science can apply logic that will help us learn about the phenomenon. We just have to get them to take, seri- uh, take seriously the very idea like we once did. Yeah, it's great that you bring that up because I agree just so wholeheartedly with all of that, that um, uh, that I like you bringing up the golden years too because I always refer to that and and don't want people to forget these early days. And Ruppelt's book especially that you mentioned, which you can go download for free, everybody. And this is the first early report on Blue Book. And you see this evolution of these people – taking this phenomena very seriously, many in the Air Force and scientific community very quickly jumping to the extraterrestrial answer or that theory and going that way, which is an interesting insight. But then you also see this kind of morphing where all of a sudden the Air Force uh, felt embarrassed by the whole thing and tried to push it away. And you see Ruppelt even kind of doing the same thing. And then you have, like you said, the Condon report happening and I think we've kind of been in this dark ages, at least when it comes to the mainstream science, where they felt, you know, um, that they can't touch this subject because then they'll, they'll lose credibility. Uh, and that's what I hope that we come to the end of that cycle. And finally, that gets played out to where people can see there is a lot of credible information and to uh, be able to move forward, like you said, like we used to do, because back then, there were a lot of scientists taking this very seriously, and this is all documented by Ruppelt and others back then, and then it all disappeared. Oh, absolutely, and Ruppelt was the very one who said at the conclusion of that first edition of the report on unidentified, uh, unidentified flying objects. I mean, that was a term he coined, by the way, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, he said at the end of that first edition that you know, within the next few decades, he was certain that the advancements in technology – would bring the the apparent mystery of UFOs much closer to Earth. And he said, we'll solve the mystery within the next few decades, I'm certain. And, right. And I think that he would have been right had it only not been for the fact that the very organizations that he'd been associated with and those to come later would uh, succumb to what I think. And see, I think a lot of people tend to look at this in terms of, well, there's a government conspiracy to hide this information. Now, that very well may be the case. We know that government organizations have certainly uh, you know, had an interest in this and have undergone in- inquiry into trying to solve these mysteries and, and investigate these reports themselves. I'll also point out that a lot of these government files are eventually released, some of them by Freedom of Information Act, some of them uh, you know, without the, uh, with, without the uh, need for you know, civilians you know, demanding the information. A lot of government UFO files have been released very you know, willingly and you know, posted at these various websites you know, of these organizations, as I've mentioned earlier. So the thing is, is that uh, I think we would have probably come to a better understanding of UFOs had it not been for the fact that some of these organizations that followed Ruppelt, uh, you know, would succumb to this idea that if we cannot prove it and understand it, we have to dismiss it. You know, it's kind of like a like <laughs> like a game of superiority. You know, we can't be bested by something, and when science doesn't explain it, mm-hmm. and our rather when our science, okay, as as previous or or as uh, as presently understood and accepted, if if our version of science right now can't explain this, then we cannot accept it. We have to literally place it outside of what we agree on as calling reality. <laughs> and that seems to be what happened. That seems to be exactly what the circumstance has been, and that UFOs, for most people, 
are maybe a subject of passing interest, but if you start having a serious conversation like we're having right now, you know, the average bear uh, will tend to kind of laugh and shrug it off because they just can't take this as something that is truly uh, an absolute real everyday part of our reality, you know, and and, and what many people say is it's going to take them landing on the White House front lawn, you know, before it will be. But I don't know that that's ever going to happen either, you know. I just don't. (laughs) Right. We certainly, you know, haven't seen that. Um, But what we can do, hopefully, is get it taken seriously to the point where um, conventional science does look into it because I think, you know, unfortunately, the people out in the public, uh, we don't have the resources to truly look into this uh, matter as much as it needs to be looked into, and that's what's more important. More important than the president coming out, I think, and saying, you know, UFOs are here, aliens are here. More important is an organization put together to do some research to figure out what's going on here, even if they um, have to start to look at some of these secret documents or try to pry open. uh, There's still enough information for the public that something can start to be looked at. There's a group in France. You know, that has done that, uh, and they're part of their official space agency, and they keep coming to the conclusion that it's a real phenomenon and it could be extraterrestrial in nature. They're very scientific about it, so they don't say it definitely is, but it could be. Mm-hmm. If we had that here, I just think personally, and, and, you know, I'd like to hear why you think the study of this field is so important, but one, for to gain technology and a better understanding of, of physics, but also I think... It opens up. It makes the world, I think, a bigger and more um, wondrous place to know that there are all of these things out there, magical, if you will, uh, that exist in this world, that it's not so um, mundane and humdrum and and we're not trapped in this everyday kind of uh, repetitiveness and just what's on television, that there's a whole world out there to explore a never-ending uh, mysteries uh, for us to, to hopefully discover one day. Absolutely, I, I think that that is the case, and uh, that you know, one day, one day, uh, whether by our own design or uh, you know whether it be uh, you know forced upon us, uh, we will come to those kind of uh, conclusions, those kind of realizations. I'll say uh, because it's going to be right in our face at some point. I think that the reason for that is because you know, in terms, especially of UF- UFOs. Uh, it is, uh, and you know, this is brought to the table ad nauseum. But um, uh, the uh, the idea of Clark's law that any, uh, you know, uh, Arthur C. Clark's third law specifically, uh, that states that any sufficiently advanced technology perceived by a lesser advanced technology will perceive it as magic. The truth is, is that if we, as advanced and technologically, you know, savvy as we are right now, or perceive ourselves as being, is you know, when we perceive something that is so much more advanced than us. Uh, it is difficult for us to reconcile with and even incorporate that, again, as I'd said, into our very reality. So I think that in the future, as we become more technologically advanced, it's going to become uh, less and less easy for us to escape the reality, the fundamental reality that constitutes UFOs and a variety of other different kind of strange phenomena. And to take one more thing into consideration, too, you know, whether or not you, you, you know, support the, the absolute literal truth of what uh, Whitley Strieber wrote in uh, the book Communion, he makes some very philosophical, uh, you know, uh, some very, very brilliant philosophical statements in that book. And one was that, you know, after his interaction with what he perceived as being, you know, these beings, he, I don't think he ever called them extraterrestrial, but he, he referred to them as, you know, non-human beings. 
he had wondered if indeed that these things, though more advanced than us, were terrified of humans because of our apparent ability to advance our own technology and perhaps at a rate that was catching up to their own. Maybe our own, uh, you know, accumulation of technological advancement was was you know expanding at such a rate, you know, greater than cumulative, uh, or, or rather greater than uh, exponential. And uh, and that they were afraid of humans for the very reason that we might catch up to them. And if I don't know that that's indeed the case. This was some of Strieber's own speculation. But if we go along, you know, following that argument, indeed, you know, in the next 20 to 30 years, with the rate of growth of technology, you know, something that there's a lot of empirical data to to uh, to, uh, to back this up. I mean, whether or not you you uh, support you know literal interpretations of what they call a technological singularity uh, to to occur in the next you know half a century sometime. Uh, you know, books like Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near, at very least will provide a lot of empirical data that supports the notion that, you know, technology is trending not toward, you know, cumulative growth, you know, on an exponential scale, but truly at greater than exponential growth. And therefore, uh, it's going to be a situation, I think, very soon that our technology is going to bring us face to face, literally, with a variety of different strange phenomena. And then we will be forced to reconsider uh, you know, our place and their place as well in what we call reality because it won't be something we can ignore any longer at that point. That's pretty damn exciting. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I agree. <laughs> no, it's great. I agree with you regardless of with Strieber, whether you believe his story or not. He's got an excellent mind, and, you know, I was going to bring up earlier kind of what Einstein had talked about uh being talking about imaginative uh, speculation and how important that is to science and science without imagination is going to get nowhere because you can't you have to have the the imagination to come up with a hypothesis in the first place to to go down the route and that's what's i think great about um a lot of what you're talking about here it's uh imaginative uh speculation about some of the very many other possibilities we could be um, dealing with here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I do want to ask, now that we're kind of getting to the end, uh, what got you into all of this? What got me into all this? Uh, you know, uh, the long story short, I was uh, probably in you know, kindergarten or first grade, and um, my my parents were always, you know, kind of interested in this sort of thing. I think my mom, you know, was more interested in, you know, folk tales and, you know, stories of ghosts and hauntings and the like, whereas my father, of course, you know, he, he speaks many languages and he, you know, majored in classics when he went to college. And so he studied Latin, Greek and Hebrew and things like that and therefore takes a much more historical and cultural uh, interest, you know, or that kind of perspective in terms of his interest in strange phenomena. Uh, I don't think for either of them that it was like a lifelong passion and something that they wanted to pursue like it has become for me, but they nonetheless introduced me to those ideas at a very early age. Um, you know, I kept asking, you know, I was, I was like a little bulldog, you know, you know, biting at the ankles and everything, just wanting to know more about this. And so uh, I think my father finally came to the uh, conclusion that it would be a good idea to, ex you know, to expose me to some books about this. One of them was Ray Fowler's uh, UFOs, Interplanetary Visitors, um, Ivan Sanderson's book, Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, um, and a few others were among the books that I was first. And these were pretty, I mean, these were thick, you know, mass market paperback you know, I mean, adult reading books. And I at first, you know, probably couldn't do much more than look at the pictures and have them be read to me. But by the time I was in second or third grade, uh, you know, and this is where it got interesting. My interest in this phenomenon literally, I think, you know, helped me uh, grow and progress, uh, you know, as a student in elementary school at the very least. 
um, my teachers were like, you know, some of them loved it because they were like, you know, he is reading right now. He's in second grade and he's reading at a fifth grade or sixth grade level. And some of the teachers, when I got to third grade specifically, one of my teachers really didn't like it because she said, although he might be reading, you know, so much better than the other students in the class right now, and he and he and, and this kind of spread too. I, I, I generally tended to be a lot better with everything except for you know math. That didn't come until much later. <laughs> but uh, you know, my third grade teacher literally had a parent teacher conference, I think, and uh, and pointed out to my mom and dad her concern about my interest in the subject of UFOs and Bigfoot. <laughs> studies like that and everything and my mom and dad kind of looked at her blankly and said well he's reading isn't he you know so they they went to bat for me and uh you know i i just always was interested in it from a young age but uh, about the time i turned about 21 i started getting serious about things uh in terms of uh you know i wanted to be a writer and uh you know at first i a lot of writers who i've spoken to have read this particularly pivotal work it's stephen king's book on writing uh, when I was in college, my very first semester, I uh, I found that book in the basement of the library, and I would never check it out. I would always just go and sit in the basement of the library every day in between classes when I didn't have other work I was doing. Anytime I had downtime, I would just read from that book. And I literally read the entire book there in the library from day to day without ever checking it out. It was like that was the place it was supposed to be read in the presence of all this knowledge on all these you know shelves and all these books and manuscripts and documents and things like that. And uh, when I picked that book up and I finished it and everything, uh, I thought, well, you know, now it's, it's set in stone. I'm going to write, you know, thrillers and, and, and fiction and things like that. And boy, let me tell you, I tried, but I could never get the hang of it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, you know, maybe one day it'll, it'll, it'll coalesce and come together. But I was never the fiction writer I'd, I'd hoped to be. But I subsequently uh, began to work with Joshua P. Warren and his Lemur research team a bit, and uh, started helping out with some conferences he did here in Western North Carolina. And I had a lot of ideas, and through some of those conferences, I met uh, people like Lauren Coleman, Phyllis Galdi of Fate Magazine, and a few others. And I, uh, shortly after that, began to submit articles to Fate and other magazines, and that's where things kind of took off from there. And then uh, I guess it was three or four years ago I started the website, The Graylian Report, and that's kind of been the the crux of my interest for the last several years. And uh, still writing literally every single day about this, you know, and it's very much become something that I think will, you know, whether or not I want it to be now, it's going to be a lifelong passion. <laughs> well, you've definitely got a knack for writing titles because you have written a book, and it has a very compelling title, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds. Tell us a little bit, uh, in, in a nutshell, if you can, that's always difficult for an author, sure. about the book. Uh, well, the book deals with altered states of consciousness and people's attempts at contacting what appear to be sentient intelligences through various mediums uh, you know, throughout the centuries. And, it, and it's broken into three you know, uh, sections, as the title indicates, you know, the, the history of magical practices, the use of mystical processes and things like that, and then, of course, psychedelic and entheogenic molecules to achieve those kinds of things. So, yeah, in a nutshell, altered states of consciousness and attempts at contacting non-human intelligence. Mm -hmm. So kind of some of the ideas like uh, it, inspired, I guess, by maybe people like Graham Hancock who talk a lot about that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, Graham uh, Hancock, Terrence McKenna, a lot of those folks are very, uh, uh, you know, influential, especially in terms of the entheogenic uh, uh, approach to that. Uh, you know, people who read the magical and the and the mystical portions of the book will notice that I, I probably referenced John Keel and people like that, you know, more so than the, uh, the, the, the popular, you know, authors in the psychonaut field and things like that. And it's strange, a strange subject for me, uh, especially because... 
when I became compelled to write that book, you know, of course, I, I was not then, and to the, today I'm still not a user of psychedelic substances myself. You know, I, as a journalistic approach to this, you know, I wasn't someone who was wanting to write about personal experiences, and many people told me that that's what I needed to do, but I thought in order to maintain journalistic integrity, I should write about the subject, not become the subject, you know, and so that's that's what I did. And there are a number of book projects right now underway. Uh, I've got a lot of things I'm working with, one in particular that my publisher and I have been going back and forth. We uh, There's been a complete proposal that does have to do with UFOs, and uh, the, uh, we're, we're now uh, beyond the first stages of the, of the proposal, and we're kind of reworking the idea right now. So hopefully sometime in 2012, uh, I'll have more information about that for folks as well. Okay, sounds exciting. And so where people can go, just so they know, Graylian Report, just in case you're not sure how to spell that, and I know how you may be struggling with that, it is G-R-A-L-I-E-N Report. So Report. Dot com and that's where you can read your writing, uh, get information about your book, and some other things. That's it, absolutely. And thank you so much, Alejandro. It's been a fantastic time talking with you. Any opportunity to, to you know, have good, uh, insightful conversation with folks like yourself, it's, it's uh, you know, my pleasure. Well, great, because you know I had a lot of fun talking to you. Uh, I, I love the perspective, and it always gets me excited to hear someone else in this field, uh, some other people that have new and different ideas on how to approach things, and I think this is going to be important in the future because I think there is a future beyond, you know, the, the, the typical ufology that we've seen in the past, and I'm excited about that. So it's great to, to talk to you, and I'll definitely be calling on you again. Anytime, my friend, anytime. All right. It was great to hear from Micah. What a cool dude, huh? He's really neat. So I had a lot of fun talking to him, and I look forward to speaking and working with him very much in the future. So what a few great interviews. We had Micah. Before that, we had Nick Redfern. And then we had Betty Okerl. Before that, all authors. And guess what? We're going to keep it up. Next week, we're going to have another author. And this is Mac Maloney. And he just wrote a new book called UFOs in Wartime, a brand new book. You can find that on Amazon, UFOs in Wartime. So Mac Maloney next week, UFOs in Wartime. I've got to see it three times to make sure you get it. Don't forget to visit openminds.tv and ufodailynews.com for the latest in UFO news. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week, people. Adios.